in the March issue of Christianity Today, or CT, there was an article. It's called Wasting Quiet Time by Dr. Drew Johnson and Selena Durgan. And the article got a lot of pushback, at least online, because people thought, wait a minute, what do you mean wasting quiet time? Are you saying we shouldn't have quiet time? The article was about devotional quiet time reading and the dangers of having a daily devotional quiet time reading. I connected with Drew last year at SBL and have stayed in touch since then. I knew his article was coming out. And so as soon as I read it, I shot him a message on Facebook and said, hey, I want to have you in the dojo to talk about this because I could not agree more. So before we get into the interview, let's take care of some housekeeping real quick. This is a YouTube channel. We live and die based on people watching and specifically people subscribing and clicking the notifications icon. So if you haven't already subscribed, we would love for you just click the little button right there. Our goal this year, it's ridiculous. We're trying to hit 20,000 subscribers. So every one of you that subscribes helps get us a little closer. Sharing these videos, leaving comments, liking them, all of that stuff really, really helps us as a channel. Also, Disciple Dojo, we are entirely donor funded. Everything we do is based on people donating and giving. Our monthly dojo donors are absolutely crucial to keep this ministry going. So if you appreciate what we do at Disciple Dojo, we would really love for you to consider becoming a monthly dojo donor. Whatever dollar amount you want. You can give us five bucks a month. You can give us 5,000 bucks a month. Nobody's taking me up on that latter offer, but you never know. In all honesty, though, any small nonprofit lives and dies based on its donors. And so I do want to thank those of you that do partner with us on a monthly basis. And I want to humbly ask those of you who have not yet done so to consider it. If you think this ministry is valuable, if you think these videos are helpful, we would really appreciate you partnering with us. And if you are a Bible nerd, check out our online store. We've got Bible nerdy t-shirts. We've even got yoga pants. Just hop over, take a look around. Anything you buy over there helps keep this ministry going. Okay, let's talk to Dr. Drew Johnson about the good and the not so good that comes along with quiet time Bible reading. Drew, welcome. Welcome to Disciple Dojo. We're excited ah, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. We connected at SBL last year. Yes. At a, I believe it was, was it the Baker reception or? All it was one reception? of those receptions. Yeah. And uh, Carmen, Richard Middleton and Nijay were like, hey, do you want to come to a reception? I was like, yes, I do. Because I'm a nobody <laughs> there. <laughs> so we went and they uh, introduced me. I can't remember if it was Carmen or if it was Richard who introduced us, but you and yeah. I started talking and you made my week because you said you're Disciple Dojo. <laughs> yes. And I was I like, who you were. wait a minute, how in the world does he know who I am? So how did you know who I was? Um, be- <laughs> it's a weird story because I'm working on a, an app uh, that is called Bible Dojo. And so we were, I was looking up Bible Dojo and all that came up was Disciple Dojo because you own the internet, apparently. <laughs> apparently. And so, uh, and then I was like, who is this guy? And I started watching some of your videos and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That and was, then I was, then I saw you at SBL and I was like, this is the guy. Yeah. That was so funny. I think there was one other person there that like n- knew who I was because I, I'm going to tell you imposter syndrome. I was all about it at SBL because, you well, know, we, non-PhD, non-published, yeah. 
and I'm, you know, walking around next to pretty much my bibliography here, meeting right. all these people. <laughs> so, but it was cool. You and I, we got to uh, chat some and you started telling me kind of a little bit about what you've been working on and what you're doing. And I was like, ah, this guy's cool. I like what he's doing. And, and then I saw your article in Christianity Today. And that was when I messaged you. I was like, we got to have, yes. got to have him in here to talk about the article that he co-wrote. And so we're going to talk about that in a second, but I want for viewers who weren't able to schmooze at a cocktail party at SPL, uh, I don't think there are any cocktails, but um, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> for those of viewers who may not be familiar with Dr. Drew Johnson, just real quick, give a thumbnail sketch of, of, of who you are, what you do, and what your relationship is to biblical studies. Yeah. Well, I, like you, am nobody. Uh, I don't deserve to be in the room with those people. Um, but I, you know, I am technically a biblical scholar, although um, I trained more on the theology side and did my PhD under a Bartian systematic theologian, um, but ended up being really interested in kind of how concepts develop across scripture and specifically um, how the kind of concepts that we we'd now typically throw in the world of philosophy or the intellectual world um, of the ancient Near East, how ideas about, you know, easy ones, knowledge, truth, logic, justification, metaphysics. Um, how do the biblical authors talk about those things? How do they talk about them differently than other traditions like the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, um, the Greeks, the Romans? Um, and what are they doing that's different? Um, and how do they see the world differently? And and then by the time you get to the New Testament, there's a kind of convergence of worlds. And so how are New Testament authors, including Paul, um, using the Greco-Roman conceptual world to basically move people away from it, which I think is a very exciting task and has lots of ways of informing the way we should think about the world. Mm -hmm. So he's not afraid to engage that world, but he doesn't think that 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 world of Greco-Roman thinking, customs, culture is where it's at. He thinks they actually need to move back over to where the Torah is. So a lot of my books are on that discrete aspects of, uh, of the ancient uh, ancient Near Eastern world and specifically how the Hebrews thought about, conceptualized, argued about reality within that world. Mm -hmm. That's a really, to me, that's a really interesting subject. I started last year, last summer, we did kind of a summer long deep dive through ancient Near East background of, of Sinai mm. and the Torah and Exodus and some of the um, theophany Psalms and just kind of rooting scripture in its ancient Near East context. And seeing it done in the New Testament is great. I think people, I think of people like David De Silva and other mm. who really kind of go out of their way to say, look, Paul's not making stuff up. He is right. heavily pulling from concepts that were already in play in the world around him. And sometimes people don't realize that the Old Testament does that, or if they do, they don't right. realize just right. how much the Old Testament does it. So I love that, that that's your focus, or at least an area that interests you. Do you, do you typically lean, like if you had to, if somebody asked you, do you typically lean more to Old Testament Hebrew Bible, more to Greek New Testament, which, which is, are you more comfortable in? in terms of your overall background. oh definitely pentateuch torah like uh that's where i spend most of my time kind of my working conviction is if you can work it out in the torah you can figure everything out from there um and so in, in fact my my last book with cambridge university was 
kind of making a grand argument for the intellectual world of the Bible mm-hmm. as its own intellectual philosophical tradition. Um, and I don't engage wisdom literature at all in that mm-hmm. book. Uh, so, uh, so it's actually talking about how do they philosophize in the scripture? And I only use the historical text and the legal text basically yeah. to show what they're doing. Um, Cause again, I think if you show it there, then, then the wisdom literature is kind of low hanging fruit, pun right. intended. Um, <laughs> it, com- it comes right along with it. Yeah. And most people would jump right to that if they think philosophy of the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Well, oh, if you, yeah, right if you look in the history of philosophy in the Bible, it's almost all wisdom literature uh, books um, yeah. or focus on wisdom literature. Uh, yeah. But I also, you know, have branched out. So I have a book coming out in a few months with IVP Academic mm-hmm. on how the biblical authors think about Darwin's uh, natural selection as well. So uh, it's kind of this conviction that if they have a robust intellectual world, mm-hmm. that their intellectual world can speak to things that they didn't specifically address. Um, and so it was interesting. This is kind of the same project in a different wing, but it's just interesting to me that in the history of humanity, you know, in written texts that we know of, the only people in history that are talking about uh, things like scarcity of resources that leads to violence and uh, competition, propagation of specific genetic genealogical lines, uh, environmental, you know, fit, you know, the fit of the creature to its environment. Uh, Genesis is the only book in antiquity that talks about those things and, and sews them together in a dynamic relationship, as I would say Darwin picks up in his natural selection. So, mm. um, so kind of entering that debate in a disruptive way and saying like, hey, the biblical authors are actually thinking really constructively about the, the what we call the pressures of natural selection, but they have a, a pretty different story to tell than Darwin or modern evolutionary science or creation, some creationist stories as well. Right. They're doing something different. And so just kind of letting that story enter the world of, of biblical scholarship and, you know, pub, public theology. Yeah. That's really interesting. Do you have a, does the book have a title yet? It just got a title. It is called, hold on. <laughs> it's called, um, oh, it's the, it's the Tertullian title. It's, um, what hath Darwin to do with scripture? Um, comparing the conceptual worlds of evolution and the Bible. That's great. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I like yeah. that you anything that's a disruptive voice into yeah. what have what can easily become or have become tired debates, I think is really helpful. Yeah. And I think the creation evolution, we have a course here at Disciple Dozer, we have a free course called The Bible and Science, Friends or Foes, where we we walk it's kind of like a it was a weekend seminar where we walk people through mm. all of the issues that come to bear on how people approach the Bible and science. And sort of a survey, not really kind of pushing people in one direction or another, right? But that there's you you see in when people gravitate to that situation, they either try to be super concordist and show how scripture really secretly revealed DNA right. codes and all, you know, I mean, you can get kind of crazy in that direction. Secretly concordist or super concordist, yeah. I'm gonna use yeah. that phrase. And yeah, and then you get the other side that's like this, they don't, they don't say anything that has any remote bearing on the natural world because they were right. only concerned of the spiritual. And, and those just, those two just kind of talk past each other all the time. So yeah. I'll be interested. Let me know, keep me posted when that gets close to coming out. Um, yeah. That'd be great to have you back on and talk about that. Yeah, it's, it was, it was a fun project because it is kind of unexpected. It's unexpected. And at first everybody's like, what? And then you explain it and they're like, oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say a good book 
title and concept does that. It makes yeah. somebody go, wait a minute, what? You know, like kind of the, and as long as it's not, as long as you deliver on the, the promise, it's not clickbait. That's, that's You're actually like, hey, this is, I'm really going to explain this. Which that's, on this topic, I've already learned that you will never deliver what people want. <laughs> Everybody brings <laughs> such bags of expectation that you can only ask them to check so many of them at the door. Yeah. Um, so I've already made peace with kind of the hate mail that I'm going to get and, um, <laughs> Who knows what people are going to call me from both sides, but um, but I think on the whole, uh, my goal is to get people it, to realize again if there is a robust intellectual world in Scripture, mm-hmm. it can even speak to things like this and all kinds of things like incarceration, police reform, yeah, any, yeah. anything that it doesn't speak to directly, it can still speak to it. It still forms the ethic, and it yes, still exactly. gives you the yep. basis to form an ethic. That's yes. that was a huge moment for me is when I got into. Um, early through seminary, but in particular, when I picked up Chris Wright's Old Testament Ethics for mm. the People of God, and he talked yes. about, you know, just kind of walked through some case studies and some concepts that then come to bear on modern things that we deal with. And that was that's a game changer for folks if you haven't looked into Christopher Wright's work, but in particular, the concept that Old Testament ethics, even though we don't live under the Old Covenant, Right. It is still, if you're a believer, it's still inspired scripture. It's still useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, reproof. And it still is God's inspired word for those who believe in the inspiration of scripture. So how do you how do you work it? How do you make it fit? And that's a thick book, but it's actually a really easy read. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it it's looks scarier a, than it is. Yeah. Yeah. So go read it. I'll put a link in the description below. Before we jump to the, t- the, the article itself, I want to know about... You're over the Center for Hebraic Thought. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. What What is that? So it's essentially, it comes from, I, I used to work for this uh, Jewish think tank in Israel where I was the token Gentile in the in the Institute. It's all Orthodox Jews or conservative Jews. Um, but they were, we were taking seriously this question. It was a long Templeton project of... Um, is the Bible a philosophical tradition? If so, what does that mean? What does it look like? Various, and people had various opinions on that. So we were taking a long, long view of that project, but most of the outputs of it were only going to the Jewish community or the scholarly community. So uh, a lot of people knew of like Yoram Hazoni's book, um, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, but mainly only scholars or really super nerdy people like you who might pick up right. that book and, and delve into it. Right. And I, and I, you know, I'm a man of the church. I was a pastor for eight years and, and I always want to get things into the pew. And so the Center for Hebraic Thought is an academic center, but it's mostly a hub for scholars who are interested in this topic of the intellectual world of the Bible. And, you know, sometimes that takes the form of biblical theology, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we have the biblical mind, which is kind of our public facing. We have a podcast and and articles by scholars, but the the articles are edited very heavily by Selena Durgan, our our chief editor, um, to basically be punchy, short, and and speak directly to lay people as well. So every uh, so to get needs that. Yes. Every oh, absolutely. Yeah. And writer needs. Yeah. Money. Many of them thank thank Selena afterwards for you know working so so being so tough on them. But right. it really is you know taking the goods of scholarship and and porting it over. It's really translating it for the church. Some people mm-hmm. think it's dumbing it down, but if you take that view, you're you're thinking about it wrongly. It's really just translating your ideas from an audience of scholars to um, 
a general audience. Uh, and sometimes that also gets us in trouble because, you know, they're trying to make a more simple point and scholars jump on people. <laughs> That's happened on Twitter once or twice where scholars jump on and say, how could this person say this? And we're like, it is a 2000 word article to lay people like right. calm down. <laughs> right. Uh, and they have a monograph to back it up. If you want to read the 300 page nerdy book, here it is. So, right. Uh, but it really is meant to be a service to the church um, and to get them, again, thinking about, uh, and my favorite example is incarceration, because nowhere in the entire system of justice in Scripture can you jail somebody. You can't throw anybody in jail or incarcerate them. But clearly, the biblical authors would have views that would guide the way we think about jailing and incarcerating and policing people today, mm-hmm. including they might not say do away with jails. They might say, okay, no, your situation, maybe a jail is a decent halfway remedy or whatever, but they would certainly have theological guidance for how we do all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So then you have to do the hard work of figuring out. The other sexy version of this is, you know, the biblical authors never command people not to have sex before marriage. But if you go into any youth group, I'm going to bet they have heard that it was a command by God not to have sex before they they get married. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you say, well, where does this idea come from? Well, it comes from people looking across the biblical literature where when you understand its view of the body, sexuality, et cetera, it becomes fairly obvious that that is included right. um, in types of sexual activity that you're not supposed to have and what is supposed to be had. But again, all we're doing there is acknowledging that there's a wider intellectual tradition about the body, human contact, sexuality, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and that the biblical authors thought we are savvy enough to pick up what they're laying down through story, legal codes, ritual, it's poetry, et cetera, um, without creating legislative lists of do this, don't do that. And I think that's the mistake we all make is we read the Old Testament and say, oh, it's just a bunch of lists and do's and don'ts. I'm like, actually, it's the exact opposite of a list of do's and don'ts. Right. Um, because if it is a list of do's and don'ts, then it's just locked in history and time and space. Um, but it's it's actually giving principled reasoning and argument about the way Israel and us today are supposed to exist in the world. So trying to help the church under kind of, kind of we, we say we're trying to um, give the church a new relationship with the, their Bibles um, and not a brand new one, but a kind of restructured relationship where they can see it again. And that's where this article kind of comes into play is that there are certain reading practices of Scripture that distort our lenses of scripture, that give us misunderstanding of scripture. Yeah. You're moving people past proof text. Yes. And, yeah, absolutely. and, and proof text is the bane of good theology yep. um, because people think, show me chapter verse. If you can't show me mm-hmm. chapter and verse. I'm not going to believe it. And right, when you right. try to guide somebody and walk them through, no, that's, first of all, there were no chapters and verses when it was written. That's not, <laughs> that's a later thing. You have right. to read it. A very much later thing. Yeah. yeah. I love that you're you're helping people think theologically, think biblically. Yeah. And and that's I mean, I could not be more I could not stand alongside you more in what you're trying to do. Disciple Dojo was founded to do exactly that, to get people awesome. thinking not what to think, but how to think, how to form an ethic. Um, you mentioned incarceration is a great example. Sexual ethics is a great example. Uh, uh, farming practices, animal treatment, oh, yeah. uh, ecology. Those are other issues that we've touched on here. And it's exactly what you're talking about. You have to sh- mm. you have to root people in the story in the Bible as a whole, as a meta narrative. And once you do, you start to see exactly what you're saying. I mean, this book speaks to 
like every issue you can imagine, there's something that's guiding us. There are some principles here. Mm. Let's let's jump in. I, we could talk. Yeah. I could spin off and talk about this all day. Yeah, but absolutely. I want to talk. So your article for those that don't have it's the March issue of Christianity Today, and there's a. Oh, huge, I actually haven't seen the paper version. Well, here you go. You got there. You go. Boom, oh. Big title wow. page. Big spread. And then. Which Christianity Today was very gracious. They gave us like an extra 1,200 words Mm -hmm. to work this out because we said like, look, we need to put a little bit of history in here as well. So Right. Well, it's a beautiful article. Um, It's one that I know is controversial. It's called Wasting Quiet Time. And the I guess the tweet tagline or the social media tagline is that has been something like, is it time to do away with quiet time or is quiet time a waste of time? Or, you know, those are right. those type to of quit quiet time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And those Which are, I've great. already heard all the clickbait, uh, uh, accusations. They're like, this is clickbait. And we're like, well, actually we directly address that question in the article. So technically yes. it's not, it's not clickbait. It's, it's catchy. And if you did not, answer those questions and yeah right but that it's very compelling and it's a controversial thing for reasons that we'll talk about real quick how did you co-wrote this Mm -hmm. with selena selena durgan yeah yes um did did you did she how did that process work did you give her something and she said let me make this better uh, or did you guys? <laughs> well, that is always true. <laughs> she is a very good writer, and she edits everything that I write, uh, books included. Um, but we actually, the Center for Your Break thought one of the things that we ran into as a hurdle, which you will recognize, is we wanted to have discussions about how Scripture thinks about topics. Um, and what we we're running into as we were talking to like normal workaday Christians is they actually. They didn't seem to know what scripture actually says, mm. right? So we started kind of identifying what we consider a, a base level biblical literacy problem, mm-hmm. even amongst well-churched people, maybe especially amongst like, you know, 40 and under. Um, and so, and I was a pastor in a church where I had lots of depression era parishioners back in the day. Uh, most of them have passed away, but um it was it was very clear that my older congregants knew scripture very well. In fact, you know, after I finished a four year master's degree in divinity, they most of the old ladies in the church, none of which had college degrees, knew scripture way better than I did still. Right? Um, I think I'm just now catching up to them in my late forties here. Right. Um, and so this issue of like, so the kind of questions we want to have, we call it Bible fluency issues. How do you extend the thinking of scripture into new situations? Just like, you know, you learn Spanish, you learn literacy of Spanish in a Spanish class, but then you go on the street and somebody asks you where something is, you know, now fluency comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we couldn't really get to Bible fluency unless we first dealt with Bible literacy. And then we said, <laughs> okay, what are we going to do about Bible literacy? Because we're just... A, small outfit here in New York City, you know, a few people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started looking at who who was dealing with Bible literacy and Bible engagement. We, we've been partnered with the American Bible Society and lots of other people. So we realized there's lots of organizations that actually deal with Bible engagement and Bible literacy, but they don't all talk to each other. Some of them do, but they don't all. So we actually took a big chunk of our budget and just said, you know what, we're going to have a meeting in Philadelphia at the American Bible Society. And we're just going to get like 25 of these organizations in a room together and just get them talking to each other. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we did uh, a year and a half ago. Um, worked great. We had like the Gospel Coalition, um, Christianity Today, which is how this article came about. Um, Bible Center for Bible Engagement, Center for Bible Journey, Bible 360. Bi- I mean, you like name it, all of these people, the American Biblical Higher Education Association. Um, and we just started talking about the problem, which is everybody, there is no real hard data on Bible literacy declining, but everybody you talk to acknowledges that they believe this is true, um, including I was calling Bible uh, or seminary presidents and seminary professors and just saying, Hey, do you got any metrics? They're like, no, but every one of us believes it's worse now than it's ever been. Right. Um, so that we walked away from that meeting. We're going to have another meeting here next October in Grand Rapids uh, and then hopefully an international meeting after that. Um, but the that meeting helped open our eyes at like, OK, this isn't our problem to deal with. Like we can't solve Bible literacy. We can help get these people together who are working on to it, rowing in the same direction. Um but also came along a group called Our Daily Bread. Now, depending on how pe- old people are who are watching or listening to this, they will either know exactly what Our Daily Bread is, they they won't. Right. Um, and so Our Daily Bread came along after this meeting, the the new president, Matt Lucas, and I started talking to him a, a few times. And at some point I had to say like, hey, Matt, no offense, but I, I know you're the new president at Our Daily Bread, but I think daily devotionals might be part of the problem. <laughs> and I was, and and he, to my surprise, you know, I was very sheepish. Um, and to my surprise, he said, "Yeah, I think we think so too. Like we're we're really concerned about this. The older people can use daily devotionals kind of in a fruitful way because they seem to know a lot of scripture, and so it can plug into their previously extensive networks of scripture knowledge. But young people who don't have all of those networks of scripture knowledge in their head." Are, are getting little bits of scripture contorted, out of shape, misunderstood, misapplied, or they're trying to apply it to themselves every day of their life, which creates its own cycle of problems. So um, we actually work with Our Daily Bread now. They're great folks, fantastic folks, very high caliber people in that whole institution. Um, and people like to, Grace and in, Percy. Sorry. In seminary, I used to study to Our Daily Bread soundtrack. They had instrumental soundtracks that they sold. What? Gordon Conwell's bookstore. And it really? was like instrumental old school hymns done yeah. in a very nice way, specifically for like background prayer meditation. Oh, my god! So goodness. when I think of Our Daily Bread on my iPod, I have like three of their CDs and I immediately go back to South Hamilton dorm room studying mm. for Greek, Hebrew, all of that stuff. I'm going to look those up. It also yeah. taught me, I'm kind of a, you know, obviously we talked about, I, I don't mind being disruptive. I wasn't really raised in Christian culture. I came into it from very much out, outside of it in some ways. Um, and so I kind of, I probably take too much pride in the fact that like, this isn't my culture. And when I just see things that don't look right, you know, I just spot them out. But also taught me a little bit of lesson, uh, humbled me a little bit is, you know, I looked at that organization and I thought, oh, daily devotional literature, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get in the organization, you realize all the fantastic things they've been doing for decades mm-hmm. um, and that they're actually really savvy, smart people who are thinking about the future and and want to do things differently and are not locked into the past. Yeah. Um, so I was just really impressed with the whole organization and it kind of taught me like we need we all need to spend more time together and see what everybody's doing and communicate. And all of these organizations were on board with everybody wants to. Um so that was a good 
just great to be with people who are like, don't have an agenda. They just want to do the right thing and get in the room together and, and, um, and help each other. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about there's, you mentioned it in passing and, and for those who haven't read the article, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on, I want them to be interested and go read the article, but I want you to un maybe unpack a little bit of the stuff that you couldn't within the constraints of an article. Mm. And if you don't mind, talk a little bit more about the difference between Bible literacy and Bible fluency, because that to me okay. is a tremendously important concept to grasp. Most people, yes. I come from a Methodist background. And so there in Methodism, you had disciple Bible study, which was like these massively long, uh, could be at times really boring, <laughs> just, I mean, like year long study where you're going through oh, yeah. and you're reading and people just stopped doing it because it was too much. And it was very, depending on who was leading it and how engaging they were, it could be one of the driest things ever. And that was what I think some people connect with Bible literacy is knowing oh, who yeah. the kings of Israel are and when the, you know, the exile happened and who Herod's family and all this stuff. And I don't look at that as Bible literacy at all. Yeah. I just look at that as no history background. But but even Bible literacy, once you do have, you know, the the content, there's still a massive difference between that and what you're talking about, fluency, being able to understand the conversation. So how do you see those yeah. two differing? And, and and if you have any examples or anything that, that yeah. you have in mind, feel free to share. So even what you described there is Bible literacy. I would, I, I, you know, we're all kind of, this is the other thing I realize is every organization has their own definition of these things. And we, we couldn't even really arrive at a, a unified definition of what Bible literacy is because people are bringing such different and rich experiences and perspectives. But I have been basically saying like, look, at the end of the day, Bible literacy, what you described to me would be more like survey information. Mm -hmm. Um, Literacy would be a little bit more on the literary, liter you know, the actual literacy side. Agreed. So knowing how different biblical texts work so that a psalm is not the same as a story from Genesis, which is not the same as a proverb, which is not the same as, um, a, you know, a legal command, um, a ritual command versus a uh, civil command. Even though I don't believe there's a difference between ritual and civil law, like, it, but they, but there is, there's some at least superficial difference that, or contextual difference that needs to be taken into account. Um, and so that that level of understanding was what I was running into. Now I teach freshmen every year, so I'm kind of getting 18 year olds from youth groups across the country come to New York City, and um, and I realized they couldn't tell a parable of Jesus. They couldn't understand why that functioned differently and how we should think about what. God is trying to say through his prophets than uh, a psalm or mm -hmm. um, or a, a this is the one that honestly I've found some theologians that don't seem to sympathize with this point, but they can't understand the difference between Jesus offering a rebuke to Sadducees and Jesus constructively teaching a theology of redemption or grace or repentance um, that when he is you know, like when Jesus is rebuking Sadducees by answering a question, I don't think it's the same as him at the Sermon on the Mount uh, constructing mm -hmm. this theology there. So it's kind of what's in the biblical text and then how it works. And maybe you don't even have to know the details, but, you, you know, you need to know the basics like the Torah is initially given at Mount Sinai. Uh, the, the children go on to carry it in Deuteronomy. 
you know, Saul is the first messianic king. David is the second messianic king. I would say Jesus is the third. Um, people might want to debate me on Solomon, but I don't think he's a real messianic king. Um, but just understanding like, and when, so when you get to Jesus, you know, what the word Christos, Messiah, just the basics, um, but you and I both know, we call them the basics, but we also know so many Christians that don't know any of those basics and they're tripping people up. So they're reading passages and they don't know Christos is not the last name of Jesus. And so they're, they're missing some of the things that they're projecting or importing. So that's literacy, mm. which I think, it, you know, the work you're doing, the work Bible Project does. I mean, there's a lot of people who do a lot of this work who help people over those hurdles and get them into literacy, which is great, fantastic. Um, but literacy is not the goal, right? Um, you can be a, a biblically literate atheist. My closest colleague in what I do in intellectual world of scripture is an atheist in South Africa. He's a, a South African scholar, but he's a very avowed atheist, maybe agnostic at best. Um, so fluency is actually understanding how concepts are developed and then extending them into, again, extending them into situations that are not discussed in scripture. Um, so what does grace look like in a modern corporate office place? Um, I mean, they're kind of like, how do you apply this? How do you speak these truths? How do you, uh, when it comes to sex or farming, that's a great example, agricultural processes, um, Sabbath, like how do these principles speak to, uh, to, to life today, which seem to be very far away um, in context, historical context, technological context. So much so, and I, like to give you an, an example of a question that I get all the time, uh, it is not unusual for students to say, or parishioners to say, well, we don't really practice animal sacrifice anymore. So what do we do with all this Leviticus stuff? And I'm like, but we do practice animal sacrifice. <laughs> like this is what the writer of Hebrews was trying to get through your skull. It, uh, it is a, I mean, there is a very uh, Sabbath slash Passover orientation to communion. It is Jesus offering his flesh of the sacrifice. It is actually described that way. His blood, which has to be, you got to work that out because Jews aren't supposed to eat blood. Um, but it, it is it is a vivified sacrifice so that the sacrificial elements are all caught up in the work of Jesus and, and given to us in a sacrificial meal. Um, so... But but the fact that we can kind of like in our minds say, well, that's Old Testament and that's that's a sacrifice and it's bloody and gory. And I'm like, I always tell my students, if you invite someone to church who's never been to church before and you don't warn them that you are going to like symbolically cannibalize Jesus' body and eat, <laughs> eat and drink his blood and flesh, then you're a bad friend, right? <laughs> like good friends would warn people. Give a heads up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So I think that kind of like networked thinking where you see the networks develop and move uh, and what because once you see the networks develop in the Torah, the prophets, the history, and you see them extend into the New Testament in ways that they don't, honestly, in Hellenistic Jewish literature and in the intertestamental literature, as they so-called. Um, now you have a you have dots that you can line up that point in a specific direction, which is something that has to be trained. I mean, really, you have to be trained in this way of thinking. Yes. I think many Christian, if you if you read in Christian history and, and writing, many were trained this in this way. Certainly, er, the earliest Jewish communities were trained in this way of thinking. The New Testament authors are trying to explain this way of thinking to us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the question is then, how do you inhabit this way of thinking 
And the answer we came up with the article is it's not by 10 minutes a day trying to squeeze the blood of devotion out of the rock of a single sentence uh, like a fortune cookie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You refer to in the article as microdosing. Oh, yeah. And I I think someone gave me that phrase. That's a great phrase. That's a great way of putting it because it does it. The the world, everything that you've just been saying is, is incredibly important for anyone who's trying to understand, especially the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a world of symbols and images mm-hmm. and and a narrative uh, symbolic universe. I, I think of L. Michael Morales's Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord that uh, unpacked, at least I think, one of the best unpacking of some of that symbolic worldview stuff that the Levitical Well, we won't critique him here. We don't have to critique him here. No, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that of that book, but I've got I would my love own to hear. Reasons. I would love to hear at some point your response to it. Yeah, but I agree. I, there, there is a representative world in, what in is the that, Hebrew Bible. What are the things I liked? Not just about him, about I think of him and I think of Jacob Milgram and I think of right. um, other uh, Mary Douglas, uh, all three of whom I have major disagreements with on certain yes, things, yeah. by the way. But I, the three of them, I think in conversation with each other are very helpful because what they what they have done for me, at least, is is kind of show the symbolic world that the sacrificial corporate whole entity, the whole, excuse me, the whole enterprise was kind of welcoming Israel into that world that Mm -hmm. they were viewing. And then when you move into the New Testament, like you said, that world doesn't just get dismissed. Like something, that that world gets transformed or, or, or to use the biblical metaphor, the, from the seed grows out into the actual tree in the yeah. ministry of Jesus and in uh, after Pentecost, the body of Christ. So if you don't know anything about that world and yes. the symbolism, and you think, oh, these are just rules. These are just, you came, you offered your sacrifice, your sins are forgiven. It's like saying a Hail Mary. Now you go on your way. You miss so much of the yeah. big picture. And that's absolutely crucial. And you don't get that from microdosing. You don't get that from reading a passage a day, a verse a day, even a paragraph a day. What you do get, though, is a sense of accomplishment. You get mm. a sense of, I did my duty to God. Now my day will be good. That's how mm. quiet times often get presented, I think, in churches, is start your morning in the Word, and you're starting your day off right, which... I don't want to say that that's wrong. It's not wrong. Radical, yeah. But it's very me focused and, yeah. and, and scripture becomes, uh, I think you said in the article, it, it, it's treated more as a meditation device yeah. rather than entering with the story. So Dr. Drew Johnson, why do you hate quiet time and people reading the Bible <laughs> on their own? Uh, the first time I talked about this publicly, it did become a Twitter storm where people were piling on saying exactly that. And I'm like, oh, that's not what I was saying. But um, yeah, I think what helped me to, and by the way, if I could just replace one word in your vocabulary to help okay. you understand why Michael Morales is not wrong, but he he veers off along with John Levinson and my good buddy, Tom Wright, uh, who I, I've had arguments with Tom about this particular issue. And he, he at least sees what I'm saying. I don't know if okay. he agrees with me, but... Uh, just replace the word symbolic with uh-huh. ritual participation, that idea. And then you, because okay. I don't think symbols are actually as big of a deal as we think they are. That's a, 
that's a particular move of the last uh, 200 years. Okay. Uh, so we kind of project symbolic uh, issues. And again, I love Mary Douglas. One of my so one of my other research paths I didn't talk about was I have a monograph on ritual in the in the Hebrew Bible and New Testament um, in a popular version where, where I think I, I came to the conclusion they're just not as in, interested in symbols as we are. Um, and that becomes more and more apparent the more you look at what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, not that symbols are completely irrelevant, um, but they're just not as prominent and that it's actually the participants, ritual participation, that is actually the central prominence uh, in, in Israel's world. Um, because they cared about what you did with your body and right. through your body, you came to understand this world uh, the way you so uh, cleverly put it there, I think is correct. Um, so let me let me stick there for a second because this is interesting yeah. to me. I don't care if any viewers are interested in it. I'm interested <laughs> in this. Uh, so you're the distinction you're making because in my head I may be using these very um, oh yeah yeah uh, no, amorphously, but you're making a distinction between symbol the 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 sim the symbolism of something and actually doing the thing, yeah. actually participating. And if you could sum that up, what is, what is, <laughs> I'll give you a nutshell. Yeah. Cause that's a whole, yeah. I mean, that's a whole, I do have a 300 page monograph on this with Eisenbronze. If anybody yeah. really wants to dive, uh, I was but, say that's uh, a whole dissertation of itself, but really quickly yeah. for somebody who an average disciple, Dojo viewer, when they yeah. think of like you participate, let's say, uh, so I teach martial arts. Um, oh, perfect. One example. of the things yeah. that we do is you, when you achieve a certain rank in the eyes of your instructor, you get a belt. You've right. moved up. Now the belt is you, you literally, some schools you buy it yourself. Other schools, they give it to you. The belt, right. nothing. It's $20 at most right. piece of cloth, but there is, it's, I, I think I may be understanding what you're saying, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to, you can't, you, you can't just say, well, uh, jujitsu black belt, that's just a symbol. I mean, it, it symbolizes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but there's, there's more to, there is a ritual aspect of who put that on your waist Right. And, and, and who is, who put their belt on their waist and lineage is huge in jujitsu. You have to know, right. like, like people that I meet, I'm like, well, I'm under Derek Richardson, who's under Henzo right. Gracie. And everybody's like, oh, like the under Henzo. rabbinic system. Yeah. It's very much like a rabbinic system. So, yeah. so I get, is that kind of the distinction you're talking about when you set symbols yes. against ritual? So I think that is a good example of a symbol in, in, in ritual where the belt directly symbolizes, it signifies a particular reality. And of course, you have to witness the historical reality. You know, people had to witness you training and you passing these things in order to get that belt. I think the problem with the over symbolization, right, the the uh, the hyper fascination with symbolization is that you then start treating all the the symbols as just things to be decoded. There's a much deeper expression issue going on here that I won't get into. But um, if I could put it this way, if you think that, that God is speaking through symbols, then all you have to do to understand what he's saying about rituals is decode the symbols and then you understand the ritual. Gotcha. Um, and, and in that way, you basically bring parable exegesis or parable hermeneutics, you know, a parable is directly and flatly a symbolic mm -hmm. fictional reality of some other true reality in the real world. Mm -hmm. And the goal to understanding what the parable is doing is to decode, you know, there once was a man who built a tower who didn't calculate the cost. It's not about that man. It's not about the tower. It's, it's not about the, the money cost. Each one of those things symbolizes something about being a disciple to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So we take that kind of exegesis and then we apply it to rituals and say, oh, okay, there's blood and that means blood means life. And then you just start, people just start making things up. Blood means life, you know, because it says the life is in the blood mm -hmm. um, and it's two hands on Yom Kippur because it's doubly important or whatever. Right. Uh, and as, and kind of looking at broader ritual theory um, and Mary Douglas does this to some extent. And even though I love God bless St. Mary Douglas, uh, she's so fantastic to read. She did back away from this a little bit, though, eventually, um, because what you end up doing is just fighting about the symbology. And it, mm -hmm. uh, and you get all of this like Eden was a, a temple and it, it becomes inchoate at some point, And the arguments, I think, are unsustainable. But what the focus of the biblical text, especially the Torah, is that you as a community embody these rituals, not individually, but, you know, because there are ritual, there are sacrifices that I can't if I were an ancient Hebrew. I cannot bring all the sacrifices required for my household to be whole. My wife has to bring some of those sacrifices as well. She can't bring them all. I have to bring some of them as well. I can't take them to the altar. The priest has to do that on my behalf. The, the priest can't uh, mediate on behalf of all of Israel. The high priest has to do that one uh, once a year, one day a year on Yom Kippur. Um, but when you look at it through the epistemological lens, why all of this uh, if you just look at the, the phrase in order that you might know, it's not decode the symbol in order that you might know it's participate in the symbol so that you and your generations might know, or sorry, not symbols, but participate See, in these rituals. Even you want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, no, it's like so heavily encoded. So I'll, I'll give you another karate example to cross, which is the one I use all the time uh -huh. is think of karate kid. I don't care how good or bad it represents martial arts. Uh, karate kid, he builds karate into Danielson's body, not by him decoding the symbols of painting the fence, uh, uh, sanding the deck, uh, um, waxing the car, but despite the fact that he had no idea what any of those things meant, mm -hmm. uh, he built it into his body. So part of it is an enlightenment issue is that symbols give us something that we now know what they mean. And once you know what they mean, you can domesticate the whole system. And I think ritual participation is the opposite. It's like, despite the fact that you not you maybe don't know exactly why you're doing the he red heifer right, you know this is what stands between you and being cleansed of someone you just killed in battle, or the handling the dead uh, your dead mother's body or something like mm -hmm. that. That it's a ritual, even if you don't know how how it works or what it does, that you're to participate in it in order that you might know something about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and same thing with Jesus' language, do this in remembrance of me. And obviously remembrance there's Deuteronomic language of like understanding. Remember means to properly understand. Mm -hmm. So when I think when you look across the whole landscape of ritual thinking in the Old and New Testament, it's not focused on symbols. Although symbols do play pivotal roles at certain points in their rituals, that's not the 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 steak and potatoes of mm. um, what they're doing with rituals. So that's my big my that's big a, beef. That's a really great insight, and that's a good point. I don't. We would have to. I would want to sit and talk and hear a lot more about that uh, to to kind of tease it out because I I I do I think I see what you're saying, and I I think I agree with it to a large degree. I I think it would be a question of. To, to what maybe instead of saying some symbolic or symbolism, maybe saying what is the significance, yeah. or what is yeah. the 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 meaning, not in a code. I, what you're saying resonates with me because I teach a lot on Revelation, and people are always trying mm -hmm. to decode Revelation. Yeah, and, and yeah, I have to same say, thing. Yeah. Apocalypse doesn't work that way. Apocalypse yeah. is more. It's 
it's it's not just a code that you decode and then you know the meaning it's the meaning is in how it's being told and the image yeah. of the lamb and seven eyes and seven horns and all of this stuff that i i think i understand but that would be another yeah. episode <laughs> for another time because there's <laughs> deep waters that we could swim in for that you you talk about in your article practice of quiet time. And for those who, I do have some viewers who aren't Christians or weren't raised in Christian churches. Right. If you were not raised in evangelicalism, you may not, like if you were Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox, you may not understand just how ubiquitous the concept of a personal daily quiet time is mm. among particularly evangelical Christians. But it is almost... A, it's almost the level of sacrament. <laughs> in, yeah. In that no, wait, I think it is. I, it's one well, of actually, I discovered this because I was not raised in evangelical Christianity, or at least I was for a little bit, but then most of my upbringing was not. Mm -hmm. And so I did not even know about this. And when I was talking to the great thing about CT is I can call people and say, Hey, I'm doing a paper or I'm doing an article for CT. Can I interview you? Right. And they're like, yes, so I got to talk to all <laughs> Like the head of Campus Crusades education department, the head of mm -hmm. InterVarsity, the head of Navigators. And um, they were telling me, and I actually almost found this difficult to believe until I asked other people, and they're like, no, it's totally true, um, that to ask somebody how their walk with God is, you are literally asking them, are you doing your daily quiet times with the Lord, right? Are you reading devotionally? Are you doing that quiet time? Which... I thought, okay, at this point, it is a sacrament. I mean, it's essentially in that world of sacraments. Mm -hmm. it, you can gauge, a lot of people are taught that you can gauge your spiritual health by how often you get alone with God. Mm. And through prayer and usually through devotional reading. And, and of course, I think you... And I would both agree, no one is even remotely suggesting that people should not get alone with God <laughs> in prayer. That is how some people have read the article. But <laughs> I, I do want to admit, I feel like I'm ashamed to admit that I actually, I do pray throughout the day, uh, both, you know, at specific times, but also kind of uh, ceaselessly. And, and I also usually read scripture every day. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm the, so there, I'm, I'm, the I'm outed. <laughs> I'm right there with you. We can be outed together because I I don't have a daily set aside set aside time for devotional reading. Mm -hmm. My my job, what I do in teaching the Bible and like right now, I'm translating Ecclesiastes. Uh, just mm. finished how oh, that's a chapter fun one. seven today. I'm loving it, dude. I'm yeah. man. I'm going to do a series on Ecclesiastes because it's fastly becoming one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. Yes, but. That I look at it as I do that, and I'm I'm engaging with scripture, and I'm not doing it as a dry academic exercise. Right. Um, I'm doing it to engage the text and to learn and to grow from the text. But there will be some nights where I will sit down before I go to bed, and I'll open in scripture and I'll read a psalm, or or I'll read a passage that I haven't read in a long time, or maybe read through one of the epistles in the New Testament. But I don't have a daily set aside. And it's certainly not in the morning. I'm useless before like 10 a.m. Everything I do, <laughs> right. my prime, all this video editing, Disciple Dojo stuff is usually right. done between seven and midnight uh, in the, the p.m. So I, there's a danger, I think, in making what is not, uh, what is new in church history, yep. as you talk about in the article, there's a danger in making that the litmus test 
for someone's spirituality. I've had friends say, yeah, I'm just so disconnected with God. I haven't even done my quiet time in, in a couple of days. And I think, well, there's a problem if you haven't prayed or talked to God in a couple of days. Right. But I don't know if there's a problem necessarily if you haven't sat down with a journal and a highlighter and your coffee and you put on some worship music and you light a candle and Wait, you, you know, like <laughs> this is there's finding a video. Out new stuff every time you say something. That this is a this is an Instagram video where I think a girl posted uh, how boys do quiet time versus how girls do quiet time, and it was it's a whole the the, the Christian influencer culture TikTok Instagram oh, yeah. is its own ecosphere. Uh, so I, I commented Mildly somebody shared the video. Ecosphere. Yeah, it can be. Somebody shared the video. I said that they said this is how boys read scripture quiet time versus how girls do quiet time. And I was like, I think it should be how some people do quiet time and how I said white girls on Instagram do quiet time. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I think, think this is part of it too, is you you put this, when I put this out and I'd, I'd heard this from people before, whenever I talked about it, kind of like anything else, you just talk openly about it. And then all these people email you and say, oh, I've never done daily quiet time. And I've always felt so guilty about it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I have really meaningful time in scripture and I have really me meaningful time with the Lord, but it's just not in that format, you know, mm -hmm. say, okay, it is a written, you can hear I'm interested in rituals and here I am being presented with this thing I've never read in scripture, but is being told to me by people, this is the ritual Christians should be doing. And so I think a lot of the impulse for this article was like, hey, we should, this ritual came from somewhere. So like, where did it come from? What is its history? Um, why did it come? What did it, what problem was it fixing? And uh -huh. um, and that was actually half the interest for me in this topic was figuring out where this ritual came from. It was interesting to read your, I, I had thought this, I'd never done the work of tracing it historically, but you connecting this with the Schofield Reference Bible was <laughs> yeah. an interesting That point. was the shocker for me. <laughs> so I've done a good bit of, of of research teaching on eschatology and revelation and end times and all that kind of stuff. So I've I've known the impact of the Schofield Reference Bible. What I had not known until reading it in your article was how it impacted daily quiet time or devotional right. reading. Your quote, I want to read this quote. You actually quoted Mark Knoll, who said, Schofield's Bible guided readers by proclaiming their freedom from guidance. Hmm. Now, you were talking about that in that Sco the Schofield Bible provided the uh, a structure or or the, the whole Schofield reference system kind of yeah. walks people through C.I. Schofield's view of how you should approach the Bible. And and so people but but letting people think they're just reading scripture that right. they're not getting and they aren't. They're getting Cyrus Schofield's theology, his dispensationalism, all of that. It was super ingenious. Some might say insidious. Um, I don't know where I stand <laughs> on that yet, but it was yeah. very clever in that people, even to this day, will swear up and down, well, I just teach the Bible. I just read the Bible. I just study right. the Bible. Right. And then they start talking about what the rapture, seven-year tribulation. Yeah. This, I'm yep. like, well, you didn't get that from the Bible. You got that right. from a, a very selective path uh, that somebody led you through the Bible. Yep. How, did, how did that impact quiet time though. I, where's the connection? Yeah. I can see how it impacted eschatology, but where's the connection with quiet time? And I should say that Selena wrote this part. Um, so that's why it's so well-crafted. Um, <laughs> Cause there was a lot of data that kind of had to be packed into that historical unfolding. Mm -hmm. The, um, 
So if to give a really brutish history, and in fact, we're, we're in discussions with a publisher, a publisher approaches and says, hey, would you like to make a book length version of this? Because we said, well, actually, there's a lot of stuff we left on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we had to leave on the cutting room floor, and rightfully so, was, you know, this started in a kind of Puritan practice. And if you think about the Puritans who were living austere lives um, and and depended on God to bring the rains and to, you know, bring livestock um, to bear. And uh, they needed all kinds of things from God. And so daily reading for the Puritans included scripture reading. Now, this ritual varies depending on what period and what group of Puritans you're talking about. But it's daily reading of, uh, of scripture in like a daily office sense. Mm-hmm. But prayer, the prayer was, and I think this is the key, um, basically, petitionary prayer, intercessory prayer. God, do what you've promised to do. Mm-hmm. Like make our uh, our our animals give birth safely, keep our women safe in child rearing, uh, bring the rains in good time, right? Protect us from atrocious weather in in New England, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, um, and that through a concatenation of events that I actually still don't know, have my head around. I don't know if anybody has can has figured this out yet, but there's some group of events that happens, certainly influenced by Kant and neo-Kantianism, that essentially says like the human individual is the center of all reason. And it becomes towards the end of the late 1800s, you start reading these prayer books and they become God show me. God, show to me what you want me to know for today, right? Which to most of us sounds like very spiritual, pietistic uh, religious language, right? Um, it's So it's a very subtle term. When a historian, Greg Johnson, he, he pointed this out. I didn't actually catch the power of the turn because I was like, okay, yeah, God's showing me. And he's like, no, it's God, please do what you've promised to do, like Old Testament kind of view of God, and maybe New Testament, I would say as well, um, into reason directly with me, like uh, me, myself, and I, I need to see it. And kind of the implication is, and if you don't reason with me, then I might not have reasons to trust you or to do uh, do these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's right around that time in the early 1900s where, and this is, again, another historian pointed out, because I was talking about my Depression-era parishioners and how well they knew Scripture, and he just casually said, you realize that they and their parents might have been the height of Bible literacy in the history of humanity. Like that group of people mm-hmm. is the most, you know, it's the first time in history we have the most literate people who have the most time on their hands, especially the ones who went through the Depression, that you actually have lots of revivalism that happens during that time, uh, who have palpable reasons for turning to God in, in ways in which they might not have before the 1930s. Um and in the early 1900s, now they have, for the first time in human history, their own personal Bibles. You had household Bibles, family Bibles. Um, but one another historian said to me, yeah, look at those. They're all gold-leafed, and you can tell by the leaf nobody has ever cracked those things open and read them. They're more like totems that sat in the house to show we are Christians, right? Mm-hmm. They're usually sat next to a copy of Shakespeare. Those were the two pieces of literature that most American households would hold if people could read in the house. Um and so really, this is kind of force of events uh, of both a book that people could access uh, that was cheap enough for individuals to own the book that also had these saucy new ideas about that they really like you couldn't be indifferent to the ideas of rapture and dispensations. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you really kind of had to know where you stand uh, that had this kind of immediate 
relevance and immediacy to them, an impending doom if you misunderstood them, and personal piety and this kind of turn to the individual as the center of all reason. Uh, I, I hate to, I'm not going to use the word perfect storm, but it is kind of a, a, a perfect concatenation of events mm-hmm. that then leads people to, hey, we want to affirm what's good here, to dive deeply into scripture. Yes. So that's what's happening, which is yeah. great. Even if they're reading it through the Schofield Bible, they really do understand Scripture better uh, than they ever have before as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I witnessed is that people kept the ritual of daily reading, but the actual understanding of Scripture as a whole is dropping out more and more year after year, decade after decade. Mm-hmm. So where now you have a student who has no idea what Jeremiah is saying before he said, I have plans to prosper you and not to do harm. Doesn't doesn't have a context. Doesn't know what Jeremiah's talking about. Doesn't even know it's a letter to the exiles. Right. Um, and they and then they're saying, "God, show me how you have a plan to prosper me today." Oh, um, you know, you're going to get me this latte today. Or, you know, what I have no idea what people. You know, I'm thinking of worst case scenario. I'm sure it's not all that bad. But um, that was the particular story that I that finally said, "Oh, okay, that explains what I'm seeing in the classroom with 18 year olds who flip open their." half of my class admitted one day to doing Bible roulette where they just flip open their book, wherever, wherever the Bible opens, that's where they read for the day. They read a paragraph, a sentence, and then they pray to God for revelation for that day. Um, which, you know, I'm one of those people that is like, what, what, <laughs> where did you learn this? Why are you getting this? Where are you getting this from? Um, and, and this story from the historians kind of finally closed some of the loops and said, okay, that makes sense how we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, question where do we go from here then becomes i guess the the more tumultuous question so absolutely and and first you have to convince people that and i think your article does this uh, or at least points people in this direction that it's it's not the problem is not reading the bible by yourself in small chunks the problem is only reading the Bible right. by yourself in small chunks. And there's a huge difference. You know, it's like if somebody, if somebody eats a, a well-balanced diet, you know, they're, they're doing, eating well. They're, I mean, they're not like a health freak, but they're also not just chowing down on fast food all the time. If they're eating a well-balanced diet, then in the evening after dinner, if they want a bowl of ice cream, that's great. There's not, there's right. not a thing wrong with it because they're getting the nutrients they need. And right. that extra enjoyment is extra enjoyment. But when people stop eating and they only eat the ice cream at night, that's when you're going to get people who are sick. And I think that that's what we're seeing is, and and what your article is pointing out is you have a generations, I won't say a generation. I think it's, we're going on three generations of people who are only snacking on these devotional chunks of the Bible, which like even the Bible roulette method I've done that before when I've just, I've been studying something or I've been reading something or I've been thinking, I'm like, I, I don't know what I want to read tonight. I want I need to read some scripture. I want to read some scripture. I don't know. And I've just let it fall open. That's different. I think than that being how you do all of your Bible study. Yeah. So none of the things that you're, even the things you're critiquing, I don't think, and I don't think you would say that those are bad things, that there are things. No, to get not in and of, of themselves. No, not at all. It's it's how we use them. It's if we yeah. have anything supplementing them. And a quote you said that I want to highlight is, 
Richard Middleton and I were talking about this when he was on last time about reading scripture and, and the need to read scripture out loud in, in a good, dramatic and, and emotionally mm. filling way rather than yeah. just dry how somebody reads. We're talking about how people read their papers at SBL versus oh, yeah. how Richard so actually presents his papers at SBL. Yes. And I was like, why is yours so different than the other people? And he's like, well, I write it to be heard. I don't write it to be read. Right. And so the quote you said is, the natural habitat of scripture is in the ears of gathered Christians, not the eyes of individuals. Yeah. I'm going to, did you come up with that or did Selena <laughs> kind of come up with that? No, that, that, uh, I'm going to steal it. That's why I need to know who to yeah, get. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I did come up with that. And, you know, there, I really was influenced when I was doing my PhD, um, a long time ago, by these issues of orality, Walter Ong and Susan Nidich, who are working on the orality of scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get it in textual studies as well, textual criticism, where you see scribal mistakes because they're they're hearing something and they're copying it, right? Yeah. Um, but also just kind of, I had a friend who did his PhD on early Christian rituals. And I remember just having a long conversation where it's just like, describe to me of all your research, just what a general church service looks like in the first century, you know, and you just realize that really what it is, is um, it's going to be people's only access. And same thing with the synagogue, their access to the Torah, uh, their access to the prophets is basically going to be once a week, twice a week at at best. Um, And they're going to hear it and they're going to hear it in a room. And look, I don't know. I don't know if I want to retroject all my experience in the Jewish community uh, back onto the first century Jews, but if they are like, the Jews I work with now, they're not just going to listen to it. They're going to have vigorous discussion about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they, the rabbinic training of the time, as far as we know, um, was was very much into questioning even the Torah. Why would why would Moses say this? Right? Why would Adam do that if he knew that you know? So, I think that public reading and vigorous discussion has probably always been part of the church tradition in some way, to some extent or another. And moving into kind of the rationalist monologue about scripture based on you having read it on your own at home. I would say, you know, whatever we're saying about daily devotionals, I hate to say it, but we could throw sermons in the same category here. Most Christians, I mean, if we're to be completely honest, I would guess by the numbers, most Christians who go to church the majority of their access to scripture is through the sermon um, in in America today. It's not through their own personal interaction with the biblical text. Um, And that will become a distorting lens as well. If one dude, and often a dude, one woman, one dude is the only one who's teaching about what scripture says, that's a distorting lens. And I know they are not, they are not happy about it. They want you to also uh, hear it in a group and talk about it. Right. Um, So I think, I don't want to recreate the past. I don't want to be romanticist and say, well, we should just do what the first century church did. But I do want to recognize, like you said about Richard Middleton, because I also write my papers to be heard. I mean, a good sign is when people say, I didn't even realize you were reading the paper, right? Um, yeah. Um, and and I, I usually say that's because I practiced it 12 times in my hotel room last night. <laughs> <Right>. you know. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote it in order to be heard, not uh, not read. And then that is a perfectly good way to encounter scripture. It has to be because that's actually how it was crafted. Uh, mm-hmm. And and not just crafted, but commanded. You know, Deuteronomy says, 
every six years, gather all the people together, young and old, men and women, uh, and ha- have them read the Torah out loud, or at least Deuteronomy, depending on which thing is going on there, right? So everybody together is supposed to hear this out loud. And here's, you know, not to go political, but here's, if you've listened to the Mars Hill um, uh, podcast, mm-hmm. the rise and fall of Mars Hill, if you've been experienced with church spiritual abuse or abuse of leadership, which I have as well, um, the effect of this is e- even if you only heard the Torah read once a year or whatever, but when you hear it out loud, like you're sitting there and you, and you just take it in, the priests, the pastors, the leaders can't do whatever they want anymore, right? There's a point where this actually empowers the people to hold everybody accountable, right? This is First Peter 5 stuff. Don't you... People, the elders cannot lord their power over the people if they've heard First Peter 5 or First Peter read out loud because they're going to say, wait, wait, Peter, the rock of the church said, don't do this. They said, all of you clothe yourselves in humility. We need leaders, chief shepherd or the, the shepherds are going to be held accountable by the chief shepherd, but we're all supposed to clothe these, or each other in humility and, and treat each other that way. So it's not to me just an, like an intellectual issue. Like we just need to know scripture better. It really is to me like uh, it's a, it's a um, check and balance and how the church can function in a more healthy way. Mm-hmm. But I think in a lot of Protestant churches, we definitely do not say this in the article. This is my opinion. So you can leave Selena out. I don't know where she would say on it is you get a young pastor, male or female, they went through seminary, they learned Hebrew and Greek, and then they pull this stuff in the, in the, in the, it's going to say the cockpit in the, uh, what's it called? The pulpit. The pulpit. <laughs> the cockpit is great though. I, uh, yeah. 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 Many Actually, of them would like to picture themselves as mavericks. Some ways, maybe that's the problem is that's what's being pictured in their mind. But uh, they get into the cockpit pulpit and they start pulling these little maneuvers like, well, in the Hebrew, it actually says this. In the Greek, it actually says this. And what they're signaling to people is that they are the priest of the text, right? They, they might openly condemn Roman Catholics for saying priests have to administer the sacraments and that's the only way. But at the same time, they're signaling to people like, if you really want to know what's in this text, you got to go through me. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you argue with me, I'm going to say, well, that's not what it actually says in the Hebrew or Greek. And I don't think most people do that intentionally or maliciously, but I've seen that happen time and time again. Um, rather than saying like, hey, you know, Hebrew and Greek, great. We've got lots of great English translations. You can understand all of this without knowing the Hebrew or the Greek. If you want to know Hebrew or Greek, great. Let's go do that too. But if you don't, uh, we can know, we can understand this together. You can become a wise and discerning people um, through the translations we have. And we know Christians and Jews have always felt that way because unlike the Quran, they were always translating it into local languages. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 what Richard and I talked about, one of the things was how it would be great if there were sermons, not sermons, if there were services, worship services that, and this might've been me. I can't remember if Richard agreed. I think he agreed with me, but I brought it up. Uh, I said, I think that it, I would be, it would be so refreshing to have a service that was just trained, dramatic. And by dramatic, oh, yeah. I just mean good reading yeah. of scripture, long, like a whole book. Um, yep. and, and you just sit and you listen. I, I went down last, last weekend, my, my grandfather passed away. He was about to turn 95, um, passed away oh, wow. peacefully, great life. Uh, just, uh, uh, it was amazing. I went, I 
but helped my dad and my cousin's husband preach his funeral, just like we did for my granny. They were buried right next to each other in a little country church. I He gave me his Schofield reference Bible. I have it on the oh, shelf wow. behind me. He's of that generation. But on the way down, I knew I was going to be, I mean, God I said, I've been translating Ecclesiastes and I felt I've been camped out in this book and I haven't known why. And then when he passed away, I was like, oh, I know why now, mm-hmm. uh, because the message I gave at his funeral came directly from Ecclesiastes chapter mm-hmm. five. And on the way down though, I, I had been translating the book, but I needed to hear it flow. And yep. so with the beauty of version on my phone, I was able, I listened to two different, uh, three, I think I listened to three different readings of yep. Ecclesiastes, the whole book. Like reading the whole book was, I think it was like 20 minutes or something for the whole book. Yeah. And so I just, I had like a four hour car ride. So I listened to it three times all the way through in three different translations. And it was great because it, it helped me. It didn't help me exegete as much as it helped me absorb mm-hmm. and and to feel the flow of the text and to yep. take it in. And and there's not anything equivalent to that corporately yep. that Christians have in most churches today. I think when you mentioned um at the end, you talk well, you talked about some of like what we could learn from the synagogue with the Torah and the Haftorah readings. Right. And and I think traditionally that's great. Some synagogues I've been to, they fly through them, and my Hebrew is not good enough to even remotely keep up. Yes, there is. So a, it almost becomes literally a, chore. a issue. Yeah, yeah, we got to finish. We got to get through this haftar yeah. portion. Yep. Um, but the the seed of goodness in that is the communal reading and hearing out loud of yep. scripture. And if we could recapture that and combine it with individual reading on our own, ruminating on our own after mm-hmm. having heard it together in some corporate setting, I think that's when you get the best of both worlds. Um, yeah. And even the solution you know, looks like though. Well, and I think, you know, let a, let a, you know, many flowers bloom, different solutions for different places and different mm-hmm. experiments. So there was kind of like, um, one of the common reactions on Twitter to the article was the Anglican saying, can I introduce you to the, you know, the book of common prayer and the daily right. office. Right. And I would say, like, yeah, that's great, but actually that doesn't cover what we're talking about here either, right? That gets you closer, but it doesn't solve the problem. And I think you're right about, uh, depending on what synagogue and how they treat the Torah or the half Torah, like, you know, I've I got stories there I can tell um, from my time living in Israel. But sure, um, the, I mean, I think, you know, when I say Bible literacy, I include this aspect in as well. You know, First Peter is a letter that written as a sermon. Romans is a sermon. Uh, the the Ephesians is a sermon, and say like, okay, how how many times has your congregation just heard the sermon, right? So it's amazing to me that we will we will give a sermon, uh, we will break a sermon into little parts and give you know a twenty part sermon on that sermon, mm-hmm. uh, and never have actually just sat there and listened to it. Mm-hmm. I always like you whenever I do research. I listen to whatever text I'm I'm working on in the Hebrew. I'll listen to it in the Hebrew. I'll listen to it uh, in English translations as well. And I'm telling you, I always catch things when I listen to it that I never saw when I was reading through the text. Yes, Um, absolutely. I now have done some research on the cognitive side of reading, and I now understand probably why that's the case. 
Um, so there's lots of great, you know, if you're interested, there's lots of great research on reading, how it works and how it's different than listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's really good reasons for, re- believe it or not, there's really good uh, neuropsychological reasons to read p- paper books. Um, also, what was surprising to me is even Gen Z, the current young generation, all generations, if you ask them, the majority always prefer paper books. Um, unless it's like a textbook, then they're like, give it to me on a PDF. But if it's something they they care about, they want it in paper. Um, and so there's a different spatial relationship. There's all kinds of interesting things going yeah. on there. But that all to say, the paper's great, um, but the oral, the hearing of it in your ears actually does something very different in how you understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hearing and community actually changes the way you understand the text as well. Um, so I don't, I don't think what we're doing is wrong. I think it can just very easily be veered off. Like, so the daily devotional reading, the, the, the part that I was encountering from students in class, because again, I wasn't really taught it when I was a Christian, uh, when I became a Christian, um, is just a veering off of something that was at once, at one time was a good practice for the people. Um, it's like the good practice, wrong context makes it a distorting lens into mm-hmm. scripture. So, um, and we really wanted to be specific. You know, some people said, well, you only say once that you're not trying to throw away daily reading, but the rest of the article is about this other stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't think you need to tell most Christians that they should be reading scripture every day. I feel like they've heard that message loud and clear. Um, we're yeah. trying to say, what about the other stuff? Um, which yeah, is hard. Nobody's, hard. nobody's thinking, no Christian is hearing, oh, you know, I shouldn't read my Bible every day. That's right. a working assumption. So yes. there's no need to, you don't need to reiterate that. What, you, what the article does well is it with everything, with every good thing, I mean, think about sin. Sin is just the distortion of anything good. Right. Even the most right. heinous sin, you can drill down and find a core of something that is good that was just completely twisted and and, and turned into evil. So... Everything, the, the, the good thing about scripture reading by yourself is you don't really need to spend much time on that. Mm-hmm. But the dangers or not dangers, well, kids say dangers or the pitfalls or the, you know, the things to look out for are what you point out in the article. Those are yeah. the things. And that's the value of it, because it's that's what discernment is, is discernment is like keeping an eye out on the good things that can get distorted. Yeah as much as the bad things to be on the lookout for. And so every Christian practice, whether it's, you know, worship um, practices, whether it's prayer practices, whether it's Bible reading, they all can be distorted. They all can yep. go down bad paths or can be subtly twisted, subtly turned. Like you talked about where it became going from God, fulfill your prayers for us that you have promised to God, give me what I need today in my life. It, it becomes we to me. That's yeah. very common in, in Bible reading, private devotional reading. I think that's probably the most common way people read the Bible. Well, and not to get too creepy, but it actually parallels Ouija technology and scripture and Ouija, you know, what's wrong with, and by Ouija, and some people think this is the wrong term, but who cares? Um, but whatever you call casting lots, um, divination practices, I guess is the general term that's proper here. But um, 
Israel believes in, in divination practices. Um, they practice them throughout. David does. He, when he inquires of Yahweh, he literally means he's like using Ouija technology. Um, and my student, because I teach Old Testament, and you can almost see it in their eyes. We're like, oh, thank God we're in the Old Testament, and the New will do away with this. And I'm like, nope, that's how they selected the 12th apostle, um, is they use the same Ouija technology that was used in the Hebrew Bible. And you say, well, hey, wait, why is that okay? Maybe even commendable. I, I, I force them to think about should they as Christians still continue to use certain Ouija technology in very certain conditions? Um, why is that okay or not okay, or okay, but not the Ouija board itself? And I think the answer you'll get across scripture is basically through various divination techniques that are condemned um, is that, you know, you think about a Ouija board, it's basically saying, I've got questions and you better have answers, divine realm, right? Mm -hmm. It's demanding of the divine realm an answer. Who am I going to marry? How long will I live? Right. And obviously God does not play that game whatsoever right. uh, with Israel. Uh, and when they try, like even I think when you take when they take the the Ark of the Covenant to the the battle lines, uh, thinking that it's going to help them win, uh, and Samuel, I think that, that that actually is kind of a form of what's going on and demanding something from the, the divine realm. But when you faithfully listen to God's voice and do what He says, you're going to run into T intersections or Ys where you don't know which way to go, and it's okay sometimes to inquire of Him. Mm. We see that it's okay. I I mean I. I'm not saying it's the same, but I mean, there is an element of overlap uh, between people listening faithful to God and just saying, like, help me be a faithful slave to you, which is the language of Scripture. Help, we're, we're Christ's slaves. We're meant to be slaves to him. Mm -hmm. um, and saying, tell me, you know, I demand of you right now. Tell me what I need to know. Right. I don't yes. think people would frame it as a demand, but it's basically a soft demand or coercion. Yeah, some it's, people actually uh, do frame. I've heard, you know, on the on the far end in, in certain charismatic circles, they will. Oh no! Oh yeah! God wants you to demand and declare and decree yep. and you know and it become that. That's I think magic is the right word for it. It turns yeah prayer. Yeah, into there's magic. elements of magic going on there. Yep. Yeah, you do this, that will placate the divine. You've right. said the right words. You called him by his name. You pronounce right. his name correctly. You know, I mean, this is magic. <laughs> this is pagan magic. Yeah. It's yeah. straight from Egyptian, you know, practices, but it, it's just, you know, nagged its the way. The technical into name for that is um, theurgy. Theurgy. Is, uh, theurgy, like energy moving, moving mm -hmm. God, basically. You are doing something to move God. Um which I think, yeah, I think it, so you said you don't want to call it a dangerous practice, this daily devotional practice, but I actually think there's a form of it that is dangerous because it creates such a distorted lens on who God is and what he's up to in this world mm -hmm. that you can no longer recognize it. And I opened the article with a story about my students and it was really concerning. I was, you know, <laughs> I would have students that would go tell their friends, like Dr. Johnson has this crazy view of God. And I'd be like, you know, they'd be in office hours and say, you're like, yeah, I heard you have crazy views. I'm like, well, what crazy view? And then they'll tell me and I'll say, I was literally just reading the Bible out loud to them. That wasn't <laughs> my view. That was the scripture itself, you know? Right. Um, and so it really became, it, it, it can become something to where they can't even hear what the biblical text is saying um, because they've got such a distorted lens. So I... I think it's mildly more dangerous than most people. I think most people say like, hey, as long as they're in the word every day, that's the good thing. I mean, an initial Twitter storm that came out, not about this article, but kind of the impulse that led to this article, you know, there was 
pastors in my city, in New York City, who are saying, don't listen to Drew Johnson, read your Bible every day, whatever he says, you know, and they're same thing with the article, like just this kind of shutdown mentality. This is a fundamental good. As long as you do it, then you're good to go. And, and again, I'm not saying that they're doing this, but that can cross over into that magic type thinking that kind right. of like, just do this thing and you're good to go. Right. Right. And I don't and see the impulses for that in scripture. It, there, that's really a danger with any spiritual discipline. Um, yes. I think with any spiritual discipline, it can become the magic. It can become incantation or ritual that is not meant to, to uh, solidify relational bonds between us and God, but that's meant to get something from God. I mean, I know mm -hmm. people that think, well, fasting is you fast so that you will move God to act. And I mean, you see people doing that in scripture. Yeah, that's certainly part of some of the strategies in scripture. Yeah, but it, but you also see a lot of stuff in scripture that is, yeah. you know, described rather than prescribed. Yeah. And uh, it's not everything. That's part of the reading it out loud and discussing it together. Yeah. It's so helpful is you have people go, wait a minute, what is even tone of voice? Even I, the, the listen to Ecclesiastes on the ride, there were two versions. I listened to New Living and I listened to, I can't remember the, I think the second one was, uh, I want to say Holman Christian or something. Oh, yeah. It was two back That's to back. That's the one that has Yahweh in it. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And listening back to back, there was the same passage and it was read in two different inflections and it gave oh, a yeah. different meaning to the. Uh, it brought out an entire different nuance that I had right. not thought about. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I wonder if that is the nuance that this has. Because we, I was thinking about this in my own talking day to day. I, if somebody asks me something like, hey, how was your day? And I go, great. They know that I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But if I wrote that and 2000 years from now, archaeologists dig up a transcript of my right. text conversation, whatever, and they see how right. was, was so Great. excited <laughs> <laughs> there that gets lost. And so yeah. I, I just I wonder myself sometimes how much of that is in Scripture, how much, you know, yeah. how many verses do we read in a different tone than they were given? Yeah. Uh, I know uh, what you what you know. This is the importance of literary device and repetition, and mm -hmm. you know, like that's why some of us need to know it in Hebrew. Not everybody, but um, I always encourage as many people are, who are as interested learn a little bit of Hebrew, but uh, and, and Greek as well. But there really is like you can you know in some ways it's not rocket science, and that you can see through literary device. Um, even little chiasms or inclusios that really do square off what it could possibly mean versus what it couldn't be right. indicated. Um, ben Witherington had a fun example. I always remember that ben, Ben's, I've, I've known him for a while and um, one of the few Methodist biblical scholars. Uh, ben Witherington, the third? The third, yes. Okay, just making sure yes. we're talking about the same. Not, not the first or second. Um, but he, he he's in his, one of his commentaries that talks about when, because he's pretty pacifist and the example where they say, well, you know, we've got, we've got these swords and Jesus says, that's enough. And mm. people take that to mean that disciples needed to be armed. And Jesus was saying, okay, that's enough. And he take, I believe he took it as no, no, in Greek, that's actually Jesus saying enough of that, like cutting right. the question off and be like, that's enough. Like right. I'm not even talking about that. So th that, that to me was a great example of, I'm not, I don't know enough to weigh in on that passage exegetically, right. but that's two very plausible readings that mean the exact opposite thing. 
and just being aware of that, having the biblical literacy and biblical fluency <laughs> to be able to have that discussion is something that is beyond people who just read a section of the Bible a day, a yeah. snippet here, a verse there. You mentioned- And the literacy is so key because that, you can see the networks of thinking because you can say like, okay, well, let's look at other places where Jesus talks about weapons, war, et cetera. And you can start to cohere some kind of a view. I, I, my favorite one is um, now some people really disagree with this, so that's fine. Um, but when Jesus says, you know, to the Sadducees, they no longer marry nor are given a marriage um, in the age of resurrection. I don't actually think he's talking about marriage at all. That phrase is a unique phrase. A, it's a weird phrase. Nobody talks about marriage that way in Greek. Mm -hmm. um, B, it's unique in the Gospels to one other discussion, which is also about the age of resurrection, where he describes as it was in the days of Sodom, as it was in the days of Noah, when they married and gave in marriage, mm -hmm. bought, bought, sold, planted, built, um, all of these very like common variety terms that clearly do not mean what they, I mean, you don't think that he, you don't think that he thinks the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah was they were marrying and giving him marriage and they were planting and building and buying and selling and eating and drinking. These are clearly code terms for something else, right? Encoded terms. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't pay attention to the Luke's and Matthew's use of language there, um, then you would think like, oh, Jesus just by fiat just said, no more marriage, in, in the new heavens, new earth. And mm -hmm. which maybe that's what he actually believes. I don't know. It's difficult because you're like, marriage isn't post-fall. That's like part of the creational structure of the fabric. Right, like, right. did he really just do away with part of, like, that would be like be doing away with Sabbath, you know, um, which maybe it does get all culminated into something else. Um, but the only way you can do that is by looking at how Luke uses that, that phrase, and how Matthew reflects the same thing. And how Jeremiah mentions all of those same things as fundamental goods in Babylon. You know, what, is, what does he say? Plant, build, marry, and give in marriage, right? Um, so literacy, just to kind of like fight yourself, fight your way out of a wet paper bag, as it were, of meaning, it just helps you get out of, well, maybe I put it this way. We talk about the liberal arts, why the liberal arts are good. They're, they're called the liberating arts, uh, which means you don't get bogged down in dogma but when you study the liberal arts you kind of get the history of humanity the history of philosophy the history of religion um you get a broader view of things so you can kind of place particular views you can say okay that developed you know people think poetry is about me expressing my ideas out into the world okay well that's from german romanticism people didn't always believe that way about poetry hebrew poetry is actually shrewd philosophical argument etc um so i think when you know, when we think about biblical literacy, what we're actually asking people to do is kind of enter the biblical liberal arts program where there's something there's a bigger set of patterns and history unfolding. Um, but you kind of need to see the connections like, OK, yeah. they're saying this because he's in this context speaking to these people. And that's what's going on. And that's, you know, when that same person is in a different context, speaking to a different group of people, they say something, you know, carved up for those people. Um and I, you know, when I suggest this to students, I can tell by the look on their eyes, like, how am I ever going to know all this stuff? And it really is. And this is the problem that we don't address in the article. And I don't know what to tell people other than to say, like, look, it just takes time and text. Uh, if you want to become biblically literate, like, 
when I became a Christian, I was so excited about being a Christian, not about being a Christian because Christian culture was disgusting to me, but, <laughs> but I was so excited about what God had done for me. Right. I was in church Wednesday night. I was in church in Sunday school and then Sunday uh, morning service and then Sunday night church. And I was there on Friday nights with, uh, with the youth group. Um, and I was getting scripture in all kinds of different ways and drinking and reading a lot for myself and didn't understand it. And I had a guy that was kind of coaching me through how to help me understand scripture. Um, there is no way, like, if you want to understand what's going on in scripture, there's not really any shortcut path to that. Um, and, and even then I didn't understand scripture that well. I just under, had modest understanding of it. Um, and so that's kind of the hard sell because nobody wants to hear the old, well, if you just took half the time you spent on Netflix and dedicated that to reading scripture, you know, that whole argument. Right. Right. But there is like some flatline truth to that argument. Yeah. Well, you can't you can't expect to become competent at anything without putting right. in the time to develop competency at that thing. And right. that shouldn't be controversial. But I think because of a distortion of the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, where everybody I don't need right. any mediators, right. Jesus right. can tell me that's not what that doctrine means. And right. and it gets even twisted even more to well Jesus every all scripture I can read and understand all scripture I don't need commentaries I don't need professors mm -hmm. I don't and I'm like well why did Jesus himself appoint some to be teachers right. in that fivefold list of ministry if you don't need it uh, and and or better yet why when Jesus was young and in the temple courts he wasn't instructing the scribes and Pharisees he was asking them questions and growing right? in uh, wisdom and knowledge. yeah growing in wisdom and stature yeah that yeah. that copped line from first samuel right yeah exactly <laughs> if that, even jesus yeah yeah how much more so do 12 right. year olds today <laughs> <They don't learn. laughs> yep yeah well it's you in at the end of the article you say um we may need to shift the devotional center of gravity away from solitary practices and towards communal ones. Mm. And I think that that is, that is the, the exactly the right answer there, because like you, there's not a one size fits all. What, mm -hmm. what Christians in village churches that I go visit in India need mm. is not the same as Christians down the street in suburban Charlotte need. Their levels of biblical literacy are vastly different. The Christians mm -hmm. in India, in the rural villages, guess what? They know scripture better than the Christians right. at my church here. But it's yes. because they only have scripture. We right. have a culture of Christians who will listen to, who will read anything but scripture. Like they'll read the Christian bestseller. They'll listen to the yep. podcast of their favorite teachers and, and podcasters. And I'm not knocking it. This is a visual YouTube <laughs> thing. I'm, I know enough yeah, to know. Yes. Big fan listeners are, are crying right now. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's dunking on us. <laughs> yeah. Stop listening to Disciple Dojo and go read your Bible. Um, it, there's a need for all of those things, but they have to be in proportion. And so I like how you said it. We need to shift the center of gravity, not saying we need to cut it out. Not saying right. we need to do away with quiet time, but it shouldn't be what pulls you the deepest. The center of gravity, mm -hmm. that place of mass, should be in a communal experience of some type. Small group Bible studies are great. Taking classes, if churches that offer teach like classes, seminars, uh, seminaries that have programs where you can come if you're just a community member, not necessarily a student. Those are the kind of things I think are doing a lot to help shift that center of gravity. I think of even stuff like uh, Bible project videos, watching them mm -hmm. together 
with a mm -hmm. group of people and talking about them and then reading the text after watching their overview of whatever book. Those are all ways that they don't, they don't negate anything about private Bible study. They add to it or rather yeah. it should add to them. It, it, my, the, what I come away reading the article that you guys wrote was thinking private individual Bible study time should be the icing and the cake the nourishing part, because yeah. cake is somewhat nourishing, like Bill Cosby's old bit. It's got eggs <laughs> and milk. Um, yep. the, 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 the meat of it, to switch metaphors, the meat should be communal, being seeped in scripture. Yeah, in some Engage, engagement way. is the phrase that gets used. And I, yes. I like that. I think, you know, even Bible Project, I, I love everything Tim and John have done. But, you know, when you talk to Tim and John, I was like, Hey, 20 years from now, what's the worst thing people could say about the Bible project? And they said, oh, they could say people lo watched lots of our videos, but never actually read the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, a constant concern for all of us that produce stuff in Bible adjacent spheres is that yeah. they're listening to you, they're listening to me, but they're not actually reading the Bible. And I think that that actually is largely true. Um, yeah. My students love the Bible project videos. Mm -hmm. Getting my Christian students to actually read the Bible hardest task of my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have tricks, but uh, they don't all work. So I end up reading large chunks of scripture out loud in the classroom time. Dramatically. I was going to mention that. Uh, so one of my friends, she's a very popular podcaster, Annie Downs. One of the things she did was um, let's read scripture together. And so she took mm -hmm. like, a, I think it was a chapter or maybe a couple of chapters from the, it was the gospels and would read through them. Just, that was the episode. I think it was mm. Annie reads the gospels and it was, it was cool because I, I, when I was talking to her about it, she's like, yeah, I'm learning a ton from just reading the text out loud mm -hmm. and all the people listening, millions of listeners are just hearing the words of scripture. And I think that's just so brilliant and so easy. And so, you know, I've thought about doing that with some of the books of the Old Testament and, and Disciple Dojo yeah. may do a, a podcast series of let's just read some scripture or or I, I'm still mulling over how I want to do something like that because it's very similar to what Richard and I were talking about. And, and when she mentioned it, I was like, yeah, that's something that you can't have enough of that. You can't have enough of people hearing and maybe hearing it and on YouTube, seeing it on the screen. And, yeah. uh, you know, although I would warn because we, we we actually do a public reading of scripture at the college here um, every Monday with food. It's great. Uh, Grace and Mercy Foundation helps pay for it. And um, the um, man, we just went through Leviticus. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, five chapters a week or whatever. So but one of the great advantages of this, especially with students, you know, just young people and thinking about formation is at the end of the day, like I know they had to hear. We'll listen to a gospel a letter of Paul or whatever. Like they'll just have to hear what these people said. Right. And they'll just have to, and they, you know, even if they're just sitting there waiting to get their Chick-fil-A and take off, they have to at least sit and listen and say like, okay, Paul really does say very direct things to these churches, does not pull punches, uh, though he loves them and seems to have a very sophisticated understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and there really is something about that baseline, just hearing what it says, what's in there, that gives you the foundation for beginning that that, that literacy journey. I would also, if I could personally advocate, I would say, don't read the words. I tell a student, when I read it out loud, I'd say, you know, don't look at your Bibles, just just listen, close your eyes, whatever it is. 
Because again, uh, just what I know now about reading is as soon as your eyes engage text, you start processing it differently than if you just hear oh, okay. it. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So it's just a nerdy point, but I, I found that it, it, it helps people free up uh, their minds. And people with ADHD like me have different tactics we have to approach reading <laughs> scripture with as well. Um, but yeah, I think that, that it's, it's not actually, there's some very easy things you can do immediately to bring scripture into the center rather than domesticated by the sermon. I'm not saying that sermons are trying to domesticate, but sometimes we can. I mean, we, we, I was, again, I was a pastor for a long time. I know we fall into those traps. And as I say, to turn the volume knob up on the biblical author's voices as loud as possible to 11, if you know the analogy. Yes. Um, (laughs) And to kind of turn down our voices, turn down our theologies, our pastors, our commentaries, just for a second. You can't turn these off, but just turn them down a little bit. Um, and I just found it just, man, it just opens up the possibility to have live discussion, dialogue during sermons. Uh, like, and it's what, and honestly, okay, I don't know. It's, this is confirmation bias. It seems to be what people actually want. <laughs> um, some people want a charming little sermon that sets that ties everything up in a bow and sets them on their way. But I'm finding more and more, maybe it's just because I'm in New York City, people want to hear the nitty gritty of what the text says. And then they want to like, like have hard questions thrown out there. Even if you go like, hey, we didn't answer your question this week, uh, but let's keep coming back to it and hearing what they have to say about it. Right. right. That people really want the engagement yeah. in higher education. Um, the phrase is, this is a great phrase. The sage on the stage is dead and the guide on the side is alive. Um, and what's that, what that's supposed to indicate is like, Hey, if you're one of these people that has great lectures and you've built your career and scholarship on giving these razzle dazzle Ted talky things, Mm -hmm. guess what? Gen Z doesn't care about that anymore. They want, they want to have a voice in the discussion and really what they want you to come alongside and point out things to them and say, what do you guys think about this? Okay, well, let's think through that some more. And and that's, I think that's always been true, um, that people have always wanted that. But I think we have an opportunity to kind of develop our pedagogies and how we teach scripture. Um, and it can't just be from the sermon and it can't just be from private devotional reading, but it's going to be a multitude of approaches um, that I think will eventually be the solution. And we get to hear all... And we should celebrate all the experiments, you know, all the different people that are trying different things. Let's hear them all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they may work in some settings and they may not work in other settings. And we need to be able to say, hey, that's great that it works there. It doesn't work here, but keep doing it there and keep coming up. Something we don't have time for, but is it will probably, if we write the book, it'll be in the book is the black church has not lost its Bible literacy. It's actually maintained pretty solid over time. And so we think there's some pretty interesting, there's actually a bit of study about this, but there's some really interesting reasons why they really haven't suffered from uh, a decline in Bible literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say the church has declined in Bible literacy, we do have to be careful and say, well, the white church, the white Protestant church, or the you know, <laughs> yeah. Catholics and Orthodox were always on a different line. <laughs> right, but, right, um, right. But it really is the white Protestant church that we're talking about when we say decline in Bible yeah. literacy. Have you talked at all to Esau Macaulay about any of that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first uh, thing that came to too. mind. Yeah. Uh, is also, uh, he's a fellow for the Center for Hebraic Thought. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and so there's some way, and I, and I have some very definitive opinions that have not, you know, been confirmed, but as, um, 
and my colleague, Anthony Bradley, who is African-American theologian, you know, as we talk through this, even in New York City churches, mm-hmm. and uh, he has some really good cold takes on why the black church has been able to maintain this. And again, the there's no solutions here, but the kinds of things that help are pretty simple and you can do them tomorrow. Um, and they make and people notice and they make a difference. So mm-hmm. um, I'm excited about getting people pointed towards just doing things differently. Um, don't throw out the ba- baby with the bathwater. Appreciate and, and embolden what is good, but be willing to like uh, change program. I was a pastor long enough now that I don't do anything that's just a program for the sake of doing the program. Right. Um, it has to. It has to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in this is Disciple Dojo, and, and a lot of my analogies do end up back at martial arts because that's my other life that I know. But everything that makes a martial art effective is pressure testing and, mm. and being exposing yourself to like if I'm trying to figure out how to get this uh, choke that I'm working on to really work every time. I have to put it on and then I have to say, okay, now fight out from it this way. Okay, now put your arm here. Now fight against it this way. Oh, okay, it didn't work that time. Okay, now you have to you have to let people really try to beat you because that's mm-hmm. the only way to know if a technique works. And it's the same in biblical scholarship. That's why mm-hmm. you go to SBL or IBR or ETS or any of these. You, you go there to get critiqued. You know, you go there. There's a reason that people have responses to presentations and and it's not always comfortable depending on the congeniality between the participants but it's super helpful and it's what separates scholarship from just a bunch of people sharing opinions yeah platforming is yeah the the other version of it yeah 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 i'm not going to try and sell you on it but i think you would really appreciate uniquely my my little popular book on on ritual human rights. No, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't because a lot of your analogies, I'm like, oh yeah, that's you know, I feel like L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics, page fifty four. <laughs> you know, <laughs> great. As long as you give me a little device that can test my thetan levels, and uh, I'm, I'm I'll buy into your Scientology. And- well, and I I think the <laughs> I, I think the the pressure testing thing. I like so I like you are hitting all my sweet spots. I. I push this on students who want to have a theology worked out up here. Mm. I'm like, no, no, your theology works on the streets. Like uh, if it doesn't work for kids in the housing project over by my house, then it's not, it's not real usable theology. Uh, It's not true. If I could use it in the biblical sense of the word true. So same thing with biblical literacy. This is why I've resisted a little bit kind of creating a biblical literacy rubric where you can say, if people have this, 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 and this, then they are literate Um, because the real test is the fluency. Can can they think through, implement, live out day to day uh, something that's not maybe directly discussed in Scripture, but they can be guided sufficiently by Scripture to live it out uh, in the real world? Yeah, we we did here at Disciple Dojo, we developed a course to teach in a local church a couple of years ago on sexual ethics. And it mm. was the pastor and I who he invited me to teach. He's one of my board members. He's we sat down and said, we don't want to teach people what to think about sexual issues. We need to teach them how to think biblically mm-hmm. about sexual issues. And so we, we didn't start with, uh, you know, pornography and homosexuality and all the don'ts and premarital sex. Right. We didn't start with any of that. We started with, okay, let's, what did Jesus say about marriage? Let's start with marriage. Let's go move to divorce. All right. Now let's right. move to the song of songs, three weeks on the song of songs. Now let's look at what Christ, what pagan, sex culture was like in the old Testament and the new Testament, because God's people 
have always been countercultural in their sexual ethic. And right. so it was like guiding. And then only at the end did we touch on issues of uh, same sex attraction and LGBT and all of that stuff, because it was like, that's the trajectory that scripture does yeah. is it, it builds the foundation. And, and then once people have a foundation, which for Jews was Torah, then they build on it. The prophets point them back to it and, and point out things that they missed in it and call them back to it time and time again, yes. because they keep abandoning it. So if you, anything you should that be in, oh, sorry, you should be an honorary member of the Center for Hebraic Thought because you're doing exactly what we are asking people to do. I'm in. I want to be a full member. I'm in. Because there is this kind of once you've worked through all of those texts, it should be fairly obvious what the implications are for X, Y and Z. Right. And the right. beauty of that, the that approach that you just uh, described is that it also can accommodate all the different views of sex that are going to come that we would have never anticipated, mm -hmm. right? So, like, not to, I'm not a doomsdayist, but, you know, like, necro what if necrophilia got really popular? <laughs> it did in France for a little bit in the 80s and 90s, right? I did not uh, know that. <laughs> mar marrying dead people and, yeah, I mean, like, but, like, that could happen. Something like that could happen. Something off the that, radar completely, yeah. Yeah, and what you've described, body transformation, obviously we couldn't have anticipated the various ways in which that could be happening at different ages. Um, but what you've described gives you the skills to then uh, competently handle those various issues. Right. At least you aren't lost, cast around yeah. in a sea of uncertainty. Like you have a biblical foundation. I love what you guys are doing. Um, I do. However, Disciple Dojo can help. Um, let me know if we can help Bible Dojo as a sister dojo. We're happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think you'll. I think you'll like some of the stuff we're doing with Bible Dojo too. I'll send you some user test stuff. Yeah, I definitely. I want to. I want to be in on it because we are. We're on the same page in so many areas, and and yeah. what you're doing, I think, is crucial. So part of Disciple Dojo and part of these episodes is having conversations with scholars, with authors, with thinkers that I think more people need to know about. And so mm. that's why I reached out to you to talk. I, I've been wanting to talk to you since we met at SBL, but then when I read the article or you had mentioned the article when we talked at SBL briefly and, um, you know, that you had been I? working on, you briefly had mentioned. I've you been, been talking about this article for a year and a half. Yeah. Briefly. It you literally took us a year and a half to write. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to be interested to read it. And so then when it came out, I knew that you, I was, I was like, oh, it came out now. Let me read it. Uh, but I, I definitely wanted to have you on. And so I'm so glad that you've been able to come in here and talk with uh, just kind of give people a glimpse into what more than they would have read just reading the article. Yeah. I want them to have a face to put with it. Drew, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I love having you here in the dojo. Come back sometime. We can. Um, I want to hear more about ritual and and why you should burn copies of Michael Morales. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, it is. It's great getting to hear and talk and just nerd out with people who love scripture and want to help people engage. And I, that that back and forth and learning and being pushed, you know, the, mm -hmm. the dojo is a place when you go to a yeah. dojo, you don't go to meditate. You go to have people try to throw you, choke you, kick you, punch you, but they're your friends. They're your yeah. teammates. They're people who are making you better. And so yeah. I think your article does that. I think it's, it's offering a good sparring for some people's views of quiet time and, and, and devotional reading and the, even the role of Bible reading itself. So I wanted you to be able to come on and kind of unpack it a little bit. And I appreciate 
your time. Folks, go read. This is the cover of the CT magazine. It looks like this. You can also mm. access it on their website. I'll put a link to the article in the description below. If you're not, I think there's a paywall. If you're not a member, you may have to join. You should, if you're watching Disciple Dojo, you should be a subscriber to CT. I have subscribed to Christianity Today since I was a junior in college. So for over 20, I've got stacks of back issues here in my library, but it is really one of the better publications out there for evangelical Christians. And so I'm, I, I just think it's great that you wrote for them. Uh, read the article, people. It's really good. Drew, anything you want to share before we go or any final parting words? No, it's great to have this conversation where we can talk about the article because I know we couldn't include... 90% of this in the article. So it's great to be able to just kind of talk about how it came about and the various moving parts behind it and yeah. the future of the ideas uh, within it. And it's good to hear, you know, that we have a, a brother from another mother in Disciple <laughs> Dojo here from the yeah. Center of Your Break Thought. So we're, we're all about, we're going to hopefully do some stuff in the future or at least continue to lift up what you guys are doing and vice versa. And, and that's the way to do it. You know, we're all on the same team. So that's right. Stuff. Well, have a great rest of your week, and uh, thanks for stopping by. All right. Peace to you, brother. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I encourage you to check out the links in the video description below to see where you can access more of Drew's work, where you can check out stuff going on with the Center for Hebraic Thought, as well as some of the links I'm going to include to Disciple Dojo videos, where we help people do exactly what we talked about in this discussion, to move from Bible illiteracy to Bible literacy ultimately to Bible fluency. We are all about that here at Disciple Dojo. So check out those resources and we'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo. Mm -hmm.